Welcome to your sophomore year at the Tragedy Academy, where you are the teacher and we are the students. Together, we learn from past tragedy to lay the foundation for a better humanity. The only supplies you'll need an open mind and a sense of humor. So, tilt that chair back, talk out of turn, and never raise your hand. Because this is the Tragedy Academy and class in session. I'm Pure Scott. Quick question before we start. Who's the gluten dragon? <laughs> gluten is the gluten dragon. Uh, okay. Well, I didn't know if it was just like an unfortunate name. <laughs> well, welcome to the Tragedy Academy, a show created to bridge societal divides in a judgment-free zone using candor and humor. My name is Jay, and today I am joined by Aliza Sherman. How are you doing today, Aliza? I'm doing really well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. I've got like so many things to read off about you because you're so accomplished. Uh-oh. I want to make sure that we give you some credit up front before you have to, you know, talk to a dodo like me for a while. <laughs> so, Aliza is the uh, is a web pioneer and you've written 12 books, which you wrote one of my favorite types of books and that's a complete idiot's guide to uh, crowdsourcing. I think this complete idiot's guide is right up my alley. You wrote something called Elementa and that's about cannabis, correct? Well, Elementa is the company that I co-founded to educate women about cannabis for wellness. My book is Cannabis and CBD for Health and Wellness with Dr. June Chen. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. You've got so many things going on. I mean, you were named uh, top people who matter most on the internet in 95. That was just the beginning. I mean, we were still trying to wait 10 minutes before a picture to show up on the screen then. Um, that was probably before pictures. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it really was, yeah, actually. Mm-hmm. It was a while ago. It was a few years after the web had been developed and made public. Tim Berners-Lee developed the web, the technology for the web, the coding, the markup. And yeah, it was something I learned about in 1994 and 1995. I just started doing web things. You're a pioneer, though. I mean, because let's let's face it, that was not for women at the time. Women were not necessarily oh. included in that world. Well, that's absolutely true. Women made up 10% of the internet population. And if you think about it now, it's about the same as the world population. 50, 51% mm-hmm. female on the internet. Uh, but back then it was 10%. And it wasn't even, the internet wasn't for women. It wasn't for the layperson. It wasn't for someone who wasn't academic or scientific or military. Mm. And there were pockets of these communities forming and it was artists and performers and other creative types who got wind of this and were starting to gather. And then there were the activists who started to gather. So it really was a Wild West foreign territory for everybody and particularly risky and dangerous uh, for women. Yeah, I, would, a, I would concur with very that. harassing environment. I can remember all the way back to Yahoo when it was, you know, ASL was the way that you greeted somebody online, you know, in, in a chat room, like age, sex, and location in these chat rooms from like way back. That was, yeah, that was like was... 1996 or something like that. Okay. There was always the threat of a trucker out there talking to you that you didn't know. It was weird <laughs> for everybody. It was always weird. And back then, so this is, I'm talking about the really early 90s, even pre-web. Mm. Um, back, back then, it was men posing as women and you'd had no idea. Yeah, that's just, what I mean. Yeah. It was, oh. Yeah. It was, it was just very interesting how the anonymity 
uh, really affected the way that we related to each other. Mm, it brings it out was, the uh, the colorful parts of uh, a human whenever they feel like they're not going to be exposed for what they're doing. Exactly. And that still happens. That dynamic exists. But over the course of decades, we've now created safer places, places that are more welcoming, uh, as well as places that are contentious where you can have a debate or you know, have a flame war is what we used to call it when you were just attacking each other online. I love that. Um, I, I like that you brought up one thing in particular, though, and that the people that gravitated toward it were creators and people that were willing to affect change because that's what creators do. Even music or art or any of these modicums are ways to spread and affect change with love. I mean, let's face it, if it's being done from the right place, it creates a completely different world. And I think that I preach it all the time on the show, but when creators create, they need to realize that they are creating the future. We affect change to the creations that we make. And when you bring all those people together, there's an onus on us when we have something so so strong in such yeah. a you know a vast communication network we have to make sure that we do it with trying to think with of the respect. right word yeah with respect with mindfulness correct with with caring mm. uh, there's a lot of that missing kind of right now we seem to be in a lot of turmoil and a lot of disruption not the good kind but the kind that just is making a lot of things feel unstable. And I think people are scared and angry and there's a lot of unpleasant things happening online right now. That's that fragility of reality that people don't realize that there's, when, when reality is given to you, by other people, you tend to react rather than proactively looking at it and realizing that everything that you're taking on is a choice. And we right. take on this reality and it's being given to us, I mean, from so many different directions at this point. Oh, everybody, point I don't have enough fingers and toes to point the directions. It's being given to us, though. We're living that life and we're, we need to realize that now with the ability to communicate the way we do, the ability to bridge societal divides, utilizing the internet as the backbone for it. Instead of it creating these smaller groups, these, you said these pocket groups and things like that, I think the pocket groups are now coming forward in a different manner. They're going to allow us to talk about something like we're going to discuss today. And that's one of the things that I like about the internet. The anonymity was great to a certain degree, but now there's yeah. safety in numbers. And I feel like yeah. affected change throughout our lifetime has always been, it stands on the precipice of large groups. And when large groups take a large step together, it takes away the pain across the board. It allows people mm -hmm. to empathize and they can move forward and have discussions like we were going to have today. First of all, I want to thank you for coming on and using this time to help people or empower them to face something that is so devastating from two different directions. Loss, you had a loss um, that was rapid that you had to watch mm -hmm. happen. That was your father, you had said, and then um, mm -hmm. your mother as well within two years to ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. Do you want to walk us through what brought you here and how those affected you? Wow. It's, um, I always have to think of the Reader's Digest version because it it's been quite a while and quite a process, but the the two incidents that I think were major turning points in my life and affected me in ways that you can't read enough books or hear enough stories to understand the depth of effect, effectiveness, really, of, of grief to dismantle everything you know to be true. 
and mm. to really rip into you and totally scramble of who you think you are and why you think you're here on earth. So at least that was my experience. What happened in a you know, fairly rapid succession is that my dad went in for an outpatient treatment uh, of his liver. And 12 days later, he was admitted into the ER. They had basically made some kind of mistake and he was going into liver failure. And if anyone knows about liver failure, your liver is cleansing your blood. And mm -hmm. if it's not operating, ammonia builds up in your body. And if that ammonia builds up enough, it affects your brain. And it, it looks like psychosis. It looks like you know, some kind of mental break. Mm. And so he was admitted they didn't know what was wrong with him and pumped him full of antibiotics. One in particular, I think it's called Bankadin, it can burn out the kidneys. Mm. So within the, just about a 24-hour period, he went into liver and kidney failure. Yeah. Say, complete organ failure at that point because so, you're taking away too. all the filtration. Yeah, exactly. And so it was terrifying. Mm. And what I didn't know then is that you think of grief and loss. So you think grief happens after the loss has happened. But the reality is grief happens before that end or that termination of life. I mean, grief is right there when you're also in distress. So stress, grief, trauma, it's all there already. So we're always saying, you know, after someone dies, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Well, that process that they're going through was already happening and for quite a long time. And when that happens, if you know anything about what stress does to your body and your brain, I mean, you're releasing all the wrong hormones, adrenaline, epinephrine, all these things that are putting you into this elevated state of, of uh, flight, fright, freeze. I mean, it's just nonstop. So this next five weeks in the hospital with my dad, he just out of the blue designated me as his person to handle his affairs, his finances. And I don't know anything about finances. <laughs> so there was, a there was a stress of that. But what it gave me was a daily time to be with my dad and talk to him. And then and then I realized later what I didn't give myself was enough time to decompress. And that's the thing when you're in grief, when you're in trauma, when you're in this traumatic, stressful situation, you're not thinking well, you're not thinking logically. All of your logic is out the window. And I'm like a problem solver and I couldn't solve a single problem. I'm a communicator. That's how I make my living. I couldn't with death. Well, and you, you can't understand as you're living what the real impact is until you watch someone die. Mm. So it was in the watching of my father's death and every moment of it was traumatic and every moment of it, even up until the very last moment, there were so many mistakes that were being made by the medical community, the community that you trust. And that was even hard because I didn't want to question them. They were they were all knowing. So that was a difficult situation and um, still something I, I know I haven't fully recovered from. And I don't think I ever will. And I think that's one of the points I, I want to make is there is no timeline for grief. And certainly anybody else's timeline is never your timeline, but there is no timeline for grief. Mm. 
it is it, when minutes after my my father had died and I was on the phone with my husband um, who was not there uh, we were in different states and I said to him I'm going to come back to you totally changed this has changed me down on the cellular level and I am not who I was before I said I don't know who I am now but I am profoundly changed and it's true it, that's what had happened trauma yeah. Trauma does that. Trauma does that. The reality is, is when we're faced with that kind of, you know, fight or flight scenario, because it still is, even grief and in that situation, you're you're being forced through that. And it's kind of like the pandemic. Everybody had a time frame where they could no longer move and they were forced to face what it was. And you had one of two choices. You could either crack or you could go through it. And once you go through it, you don't come out the same way on the other side. You come yeah. out better, but you just don't know you're better until further down the road because you've actually okay. worked yeah. the problem versus putting it in a bag over your shoulder and carrying it through life. Can't become a victim to what's happened to you, but you can mm -hmm. live it and allow it to be part of your life while you're, you know, moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting you say you become better. And my first reaction is, no, you don't become better. I mean, that's super subjective. But then the next thing you said about what comes later, I was able to handle my mother's death in a much better way mm -hmm. because of what I had been through. So what I had been through, I never would wish it on anyone. I never want to go through it again. I don't, I'm like, I've learned the lesson. Okay, thank you. But what the lesson was, how to die with more dignity and peace. Mm -hmm. There's, so. and, and you're right. And I'm not going to ever say that somebody should recover, feel better or anything along that lines, you know, and people will always process their grief differently, like you said. But one of the things that on this journey, creating the show and looking into all these different areas was that I realized that I've been in life or that I've seen other people in life were victim positions that had no physical or actual entity in the now that was affecting them. And that mm. we take on the pain, the sorrow, the grief, the shame, the guilt, and all those types of things for things that don't exist in the now. There's something that happened mm -hmm. or hasn't happened yet. And we live in that reality. And the fact of the matter is grief can exist when it needs to exist. And then after that, we move forward into a different kind of understanding so that we can help other people get through theirs. And that helped you the second time around. Yeah, it did. It did help me the second time around. I, that was kind of very Buddhist, too, of what you're saying. It's just be in the now. Meditate there a lot. No yesterday. There's, yeah, there is no tomorrow. It is now in the moment. Um, yeah, so briefly with my mom she had ovarian cancer she was going through chemo and multiple treatments over the course of two years um, in between her being diagnosed with ovarian and my dad dying my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer so my mom had come to take care of her and literally after she left taking care of my sister uh, she was diagnosed Jeez. So, I'm so sorry yeah, that was a, a really, really intense time. Uh, kind of didn't feel real. But once my mom decided it was time, I mean, she just didn't want to go through treatment anymore. So I flew out and my sister was there and we together just were with her. We hung out with her. We helped her with everything. We got her things in order. 
We administered her medicine. We helped her just take care of herself as she slowed down. And they gave us morphine. My sister has a medical uh, background and knew how to administer it. And just over the course of time, we didn't want to. She didn't want to. She resisted. And then she realized, you know, this is just an easing into a process, into a finality. And why not provide comfort? So she was, it was very sparing. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um it wasn't, but, but what it did, it took the edge off of things. Um, my mom stopped speaking English. She um, was born uh, speaking Spanish. And so she kind of went out speaking Spanish. She was dreaming a lot. Yeah, it was interesting because you kind of revert in a sense. It's almost like returning to a womb. Becoming a, sense, a child again. Becoming a child again, um, which is what caregiving for your elder parent is like. Mm. Uh, we didn't have an extended period of caregiving. She was really independent and lucid until the end. Um, and then she was dreaming and she was seeing my dad and that was awesome. <laughs> so she had comforting thoughts. Um, and then we just played music. We played Johnny Mathis, which was her favorite and my dad's favorite. And it was one of those things we didn't sleep for a couple of nights, just kind of getting up constantly just to check. You know, and eventually it was just... Things slowed down and it was quiet, you know, music lightly playing in the background. It was very, very different. We weren't terrified, but obviously we were sad throughout the whole process. And and there was still trauma. Mm, absolutely. Even though, it was peaceful, even though it was peaceful and the loss was deep um, and very mixed emotions. You know, you always have different relationships with your parents. I was super close to my dad. And I was not close at all to my mom. And yet in those moments, I mean, there's great vulnerability. And yeah, you just realize what's really more important in life than all the trappings and the physical stuff is the relationships and connections you have with loved ones. So that's something else that came out of the whole thing. Do you start to respect things in life for what they actually bring to you and the love and, you know, friendship and closeness that you get from family members and friends is it trumps anything you can hang on a wall, drive around or live in any day of the week, any day of the week. I I have to say though, as a caveat, there's a lot of people who have toxic families, parents who are not healthy in the deepest ways and, relationships with them are not healthy. And so I have to acknowledge that because my relationship with my mom was not good at all. And at one point uh, after the birth of uh, my daughter, I disowned her. Like I literally said, I'm disowning you. I will not keep you from your granddaughter, but I will have zero relationship with you. And that lasted for five or six years. But that was my time to heal and to separate myself because we're not our parents. And sometimes when you have a difficult parent, you think you're going to be like that and you don't want to be like that. And it's a big battle. And when you talked about choice, mm-hmm. you can choose not to be that way, but you need a lot of support and a lot of reinforcement. So, so. let me ask you this. If you're that person and you're sitting there and you have a, you know, a relationship that has been tested over time, the way you're describing, or it may not be on the best terms or you have different viewpoints, Mm-hmm. However, you, you still have the same love. That's what we don't realize, I think, you know, I, from my own issues with family and things like that and in out of life. And I've always found that the more I'm upset with them, that the more I realize that it's me 
being angry at myself for not letting go to spend time with them. It's just me hating myself through them. And because they can't hurt me anymore. They can't, you know, nobody can hurt you. Nobody can, you know, not those, those situations. It's like you give permission to be. Right. Right. And you can take that permission away. It's like letting somebody rent space in your head. Mm. We always say, nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. You know, I'm, I'm my own person, but if somebody calls you an asshole and you walk away, you definitely think you might be an asshole or you're mad about being it or you're mad that you got called it or all things in between. But for somebody that doesn't want anybody to bother them, there's someone out there that just rang your bell and it's still fucking going, right? Mm-hmm. Every single time. Yeah. And yeah. all you had to do was just not acknowledge it at that point. And right. it didn't become your future. More of that zen. We do, we do take on a lot of other people's stuff. It's sort of human nature because we want to connect, but we lose sight of the separation of somebody else's problem and our own. Uh, we shouldn't be making other people's problems our problems, meaning if they are super negative and we want to be positive, they can't bring us down. We are giving them that permission to do it or we're choosing to be brought down by them. But there's a huge difference between difficult and abusive. So I just want to also, we have to acknowledge that because because the scary thing is the children who are still loving their parents who are beating them, that is not safe. That is danger. And that kind of danger can be passed on. Grief can be passed on. Trauma can be passed on. And if we don't deal with our grief and our trauma, that doesn't mean make it go away. That means acknowledge, process, move through in whatever way we best can. We will be we'll be brought down by it and we'll bring everyone around us down with it. So often that abusive parent was abused by theirs. It's almost like a uh, genetic and hereditary insanity. It's something that's unresolved each and every time someone comes to meet their maker. They leave a generation behind that has the unresolved issues to go with them. That's why words are so powerful. If I tell you, that's like the word curse. I don't even know where it comes from, what it means, but somebody did. They had said that they had been cursed at one point. And whether I believe in that or not, um, the logical side of me said, well, yeah, if somebody uttered these words, some kind of malintent, something to, you know, make you fearful or live in a different reality, they curse you because you are living your life in a reality where you believe that that has the control over you. That is a curse. You gave them power. Exactly. So there's there's the term historical trauma, generational trauma, and that is not just a physical kind of trauma. It is, um, like I said, cellular level. It's in the DNA. You're, it's, it just really changes things at a very fundamental atomic level mm. that you are either in trauma or you've processed trauma. Trauma doesn't ever leave you. Grief doesn't leave you. Stress doesn't leave you. But it's how you process. And that's what I think is another one of the tips, if you will, that I want to leave people with is you don't underestimate that grief can trigger PTSD. That And PTSD is a real legitimate mental challenge. I don't want to say disorder or syndrome or anything like that, but it is, it's real. It's very real. It's it is very, very real. real. So your neuropathways in your brain have changed. Amygdala on fire for the wrong things, there you for go. the wrong and, reasons. And people don't realize that grief can be that, that, that triggering. 
It can manifest um, itself as well in very exactly. bizarre ways. Things that you well, do not yeah. even realize you're doing in life mm -hmm. or that you've compounded over time can be based on the smallest thing. The most infinitesimal moment in your life can become a completely different personality trait. Mm. And I think another thing is we tend to go to anger. What I've learned uh, is that anger is a secondary emotion, if that makes sense, that it grief could be the primary and then show up as anger. Fear can be the primary, but show up as That's anger. That's what I was going to ask. Grief yeah. and fear. Grief mm -hmm. and fear in this situation. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Good. Do you feel that they exist in tandem, and I'm going to say for the reason that it makes you face your own demise at the same mm -hmm. time that that person you love is facing it as well. Oh, absolutely. Watching someone die is your own mortality just smacking you in the face. I mean, it it is without a doubt that reality check that, oh, yeah, I heard about dying. Yeah, I heard that's a thing that happens. <laughs> I love the thought that somebody would say that at the party. I want to meet that person. Hey, you heard about dying? <laughs> but if you think about it, that's kind of how we go through our lives yes. unless we have seen it in reality happen and actually seen death. So it could be a death of a pet for many people. That's kind of their first encounter with death is the death of the goldfish, then the death of the hamster, then the death of the cat or the dog. That's often our first glimpse of what that is like. But the death of a human, the death of, death of a loved one, somebody close, we don't really know what that looks like until we're staring it in the face. And it's not what we thought it was going to be. It's not the movies. Oh, no, 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 no. Absolutely not the movies. I mean, I've, mm -hmm. I've lost loved ones in my life to, to cancer and other things. And I've I've been there in, in moments. And I, and I can tell you that the rank and file of your priorities are 100% different when you get to that stage. When you're yeah. sitting there facing that, People aren't lying when they say they you have no idea what is important in life until you're standing and facing what's important in life. Well, it, my dad always used to say nobody was on their deathbed saying, I wish I spent more time at work. I say that all the time. It's so true. So true. Hey, academics. Have you endured life's tragedies, trials, and tribulations? Did you adapt and overcome? Do you have advice for others to pay forward and want to be a guest? Then email us a brief two to three minute video to show at thetragedyacademy.com and tell us how our academics can learn and grow from these experiences. Thanks again for your support. And now back to class. You're in this dual personality where you're grieving and you're fearing yourself at the same time or your own demise. How do you find the moments where you can center yourself and be able to deal with it, to cope? To, yeah. I mean, you have to thrive or survive in these situations because you can't just, yeah. correction, you can't survive in these situations. Most of the time, you have to lead by example and you have to thrive in these situations. Even if it's not the actual, that's a mask or a face or something that we're wearing in the moment because we're so traumatized inside. But we have to kind of, in these situations when we're watching a parent or a friend or a loved one pass, we have to show more strength. We can't show less strength. We got to show more strength is what we believe. Hmm. I wonder. Yeah, because I don't know if I showed strength. I think I showed more 
calm with my mom, with my dad. I think I went back and forth through a whole myriad of emotions and expressions. And mostly that whole chicken with a head cut off. I swear that's how I felt. Like I was just going in every direction. I couldn't find a center. But one of the things I was doing though, well, two things that I remember with my dad One was I made sure I got outside every day and walked in the grass, sat in the sun, just looked around without thinking too hard about anything and just breathing. Mindfulness. Yeah, but it was, it was, it was a very, mm -hmm, but not like a formal kind. It was that mindful moment. Yeah. And another one was making sure I ate and making sure I stayed really hydrated. So I was only drinking water. I mean, maybe I had coffee in the morning, but uh, just lots of water. And that was one thing I really learned. I was so dehydrated. It's like your body is in overdrive and you're just, I don't know, sweating. I didn't feel sweaty, but I had, I was parched. Mm. So I just drank and drank and drank and drank water. And, you know, your brain needs water to think clearly. You don't even think about that, that your whole brain is surrounded by fluid. And that's why you get a hangover when you're obviously drinking too much alcohol and it dehydrates that. So, right. So water, lots and lots and lots of water. And that I wrote an article about being the grief warrior. uh, And that part, that was something in there. I said, this sounds really weird, but drink a lot of water. If you're caregiving, drink a lot of water. I think we walk around nowadays in a a perpetual state of dehydration. I think that we don't (laughs) give ourselves that, actual support that we need with the amount of fluids that we're supposed to drink and we walk around. It's kind of like as humans, we make decisions, huge decisions, things that could have cataclysmic (laughs) outcomes while we're hungry. Oh, well, but my, my joke is always don't have to go shopping when when you're hungry. Right. But don't go shopping when you're hungry. Right. All those different things that we actually, we set courses and tracks in our life or our opinions of somebody or a situation based on the fact that we're probably not hydrated correctly. We might be hungry or all those other things that we're ignoring. Unlike all the other creatures on the planet that stop to eat when they're hungry. Yeah, I, I, I think that we are too much uh, ignoring and not hearing what our body is saying to us or what our mind is saying to us, what our brain, not the, the mind. I mean, your mind can play tricks on you, I think, but it's just even acknowledging the most basic human functions, you know, just taking care of those. That can be a huge, huge feat for many people, particularly those who are suffering and in grief. But that's essential. So I wrote down a few tips um, for getting through that caregiving time and the the aftermath. Mm. And one of the main things is ask for help. When I had my moments, what I would call my lucid moments while my dad was dying, I was asking lots of people lots of things. And I was escalating our complaints and concerns higher and higher up the hospital ladder and finally found somebody very sympathetic. He, his title was something like concierge or the hospital concierge. And he realized what we were saying about the terrible care and the mistakes and all was true. And he printed out my, all of my dad's medical records for us and handed them to us in an envelope and said, you, you need to get him out of here. So ask for help. You don't know where that help is going to come from. And find the people who will hear you. So that was, to me, I was so surprised after getting so many, 
things shut down and no, 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 and denial and gaslighting from the hospital to finally find somebody who listened and said, oh, yeah, 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 this is a problem here. Uh, and then bring someone from the outside. I didn't do this. And I, I kick myself for not doing this. Just bring someone who's not so personally and emotionally involved to have an impartial view of what's going on and to just be there as your support system. Because right now you're surrounded just by, you know, the hospital, the caregivers, the hospice workers, the, you know, the family, the close friends or whatever, but you need someone from the outside. Making hungry decisions. You're making hungry decisions decisions. when you're stuck in there. There's a desperation there. And and they're they're fueled by any myriad of things that could have happened in the past, or how you feel about the situation, or right. all those things. Yeah, it's all true. Well, I mean, you're just literally walking around like a nerve. We forget that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mind is there, and the mind has its purpose, but. I think that one of its biggest purposes is protection. And that's not just from saber-toothed tigers, fire, and bombs. It's from emotions, from how people think about you. Yes. When your brain will, like you said earlier, it'll first, it'll feel fear. Fear is the initial response in these situations. Fear can be judgment. Fear can be the loss of somebody. Fear can be all those things. But then what was the next that you said? Anger, anger. The secondary emotion. It's a yeah. secondary emotion. It's mm-hmm. it's something that is being put up as a defense mechanism, not as an offensive thing. Even though it may look as if it's got the legs, yeah. the wheels, the the anger, the power, and all those things, it's still attack, just a yeah. shield, just a shield mm-hmm. with a five year old running behind it that doesn't want to be hurt. So it is. Yeah. So it is. Yeah. So one thing, if you feel that anger, try to get in touch with the underlying emotion. Mm. But also, I believe you can transform anger into fuel. Mm. Yes, you can. And so I use some of my anger to articulate problems that were happening and try to get better support for myself, my family, my dad. And in those moments that I was able to take that anger and change it into fuel, I made more headway. I got more things done. And I was able to get out of this fog, this confusion of mixed emotions and hormones coursing through your body that are just really wreaking havoc on your brain and ability to think. So the anger almost like cut through it like a knife, instead of channeling at everyone else, I, I channeled it where that fuel was needed. I think that's one of the ways I was able to take action because otherwise I was frozen. I just couldn't figure out what to do. And I was like, how can I not know what to do? Well, when was the last time I saw someone die? It was my dog. You know, so it's just very, very much a situation that nobody can tell you really what it's going to be like what you think it's going to be like, it isn't like. And when you're in it, if you haven't set things up in advance to make sure things are going to be okay, it can be a really rocky road. So I would say at this stage in anyone's life, plan for this. Find that outside person who can help you through if something is going to happen. If you've got older parents, you should be planning for it now. If you have a history of really bad health in your family, heart disease or whatever, you better be planning right now. That was the other thing that I learned um, after my dad died is for all the sort of micromanagement he did around finances and his life and all of this stuff, he actually didn't really plan for death. So things were a mess. One, one major thing I learned, this is practical. This is not even grief related, but it'll help you through 
a difficult time is if your parent is expecting you to be able to access their money to settle their affairs or as inheritance, your name has to be on their bank account or you will have to just wait, wait for months, wait for years, potentially to get access to that money. So make sure you're not a, a beneficiary, you are a joint owner of that account. That's one thing I learned because his money sat in the bank uh, for almost a year oh, wow. because they would not let us access it. And he didn't have a lot, but there were things that we wanted to settle, but we all had to just pay ourselves um, to settle certain things. That whole process too, nobody understands like how many things you have to undo for someone who has died. And each time you have to make those calls, it's just grief revisited. Every phone call to you know, Capital One, to American Express, Navy Federal Credit Union. Yeah. Oh, you're <laughs> responsible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, dude, they're going to be standing by for dial tone. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Where are you going to get it from? Uh, no, I understand. There's there's estates and there's everybody's in line. And, yeah. Exactly. And so some of them handled it much better than others. I have to say uh, Navy Federal Credit Union, USAA, they're used to dealing with military families. Yep. The compassion they showed was through the roof. In fact, they were some of the most compassionate people that we dealt with the entire process it had nothing to just do with simply finances in general. Compassion is very short for a lot of people. It's a limited time offer. <laughs> and that was something I found really weird is that people get sick of you grieving. They get sick and tired of it. And then they get Why angry you with you is? because they're <laughs> because people are going through their own pain and fear. Yes. And all you're doing is bringing up for them. I think that, um, the moment that you feel empathy and compassion for somebody else, you have to admit that you're not in as bad of a position as you thought you were and you're giving up your rank between you and your societal yeah. people. Anytime you come down and you admit it, right, then you are giving away your position. You're in a better place. It's easier to sit on your ass and be a victim or take situations than it is to move forward with it. Once you help somebody, then you have to give up your victimhood. Your victimhood because everybody's got their own version of it. Mm -hmm. They all do. They all do. And the moment that you have step across that line, you're stuck there. You have no excuse for not being good anymore. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Giving up the victimhood. And I'm trying when you say that, I'm trying to think, have I played the victim before? I sort of found this for me was my life formula that if I felt I was a victim, if I felt something was done to me, at me, without my consent, whatever it may have been. And I mean consent as in like when I was held up at gunpoint. Mm. No, I did not give those people consent. I'm not meaning um, the intimate consent part. Right. But when I think that when something bad has happened to me, I use that as fuel. I use that as an impetus or a spark to write about it, to explore it deeply, write about it in a way that other people then can access it. And yeah, it's not going to protect them from grief, but maybe, maybe it'll help them feel less alone. It will help point them to resources that can help. It will connect somehow in a moment where they feel disconnected. So that as a writer, that's been my purpose, that my purpose is to touch people's lives in a way that matters and makes a difference. And that is through me being vulnerable 
open, honest, and exploring the, the difficult exploration points, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And and I like the fact that uh, you're bringing up the writing piece of this because it kind of circles back to that initial statement we were talking about creators, right? And I feel like um, a part of the process for myself has been creativity in order to get by any mental health or grief or shame or anything like that. It has been just a key piece to my growth. And I think that when we're in that creative mode, especially when you're giving back, in this particular case, Mm -hmm. your writing is giving back. That's something that people don't give it the credit for its relieving capabilities that it actually has. Mm -hmm. The giving back to people through your mindfulness, because that's what art is. Art, in my mind, is mindfulness at its purest form. It is when somebody has ignored their mind and they've stepped outside of those fears, outside of that construct, and they've become vulnerable. Vulnerable Mm -hmm. and they're putting what they believe is coming from them in the most pure form, right? And I feel like those are the things that, A, they give us relief because we're yeah. we're actually giving back and it's then therapeutic. right it's very therapeutic it's mm-hmm. very therapeutic and then it gives other people it empowers them as well but it allows you to affect change at the same time yeah. utilizing your pureness your ability to see things a certain way without being inhibited that's why i go back to that whole onus is on creators to mm. do the right thing with their creations right Right? If only, if right? only, if only they all did. <laughs> so there's, there's yeah. some relief to be found in the creativity that is mindfulness and things like that, or, or different mm-hmm. ways, because you mentioned so many different things, skiing, wiggling your feet in the grass, you know, going around and, and taking in nature or th- those mm-hmm. are all forms of mindfulness. And a lot of people, they don't practice mindfulness in that situation, right? Or they go to that, right. that victimhood situation where, you know, you're standing there outside the hospital and you've got a love one that you know is in this situation there's nothing you can do about it and you have two choices you can either get up go inside and spend those last few minutes together and be thankful for what you have or you can throw your fists up in the air shake them and say why me whomever in that moment they're both (laughs) very yeah (laughs) right yeah so it's interesting so the very very last hours of my dad's life he he was on a on oxygen, not a respirator, on oxygen. So he could still speak, but he was breathing slowly. He asked for his favorite restaurant to deliver. I lifted the universe to make that happen. I mean, I called his favorite restaurant, which would happen to be down the road from the hospital, explained my dad is dying. His dying wish is literally to have one of your meals. (laughs) You should be so honored. (laughs) And it was a Thai restaurant too. So I think that they... Uh, well, Thai people are incredibly uh, compassionate and I, uh, they kicked into gear and they made him exactly what he wanted. They remembered him and um, then they found someone to deliver it to it. So, but then I had to go to all, this is way after hours. I had to go to all security and uh, just make sure that they let this food pass through security and all the way up to the um, ICU. So I was able to feed him some. And after the first bite or two, he said, no, I think this is not right anymore. Then he tried to rest and I went into warrior pose, a yoga move. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I just 
And I stood there in it and I was assessing how my body felt because I'd been ignoring my body the entire time, (laughs) really. Um, And my hips hurt. And I wrote an essay about this, that women hold grief in our hips. And I realized that over the course of those five weeks watching my dad die, it was harder and harder for me to get up and down out of a chair. Almost the same kind of pain that I had after giving birth where you, your pelvis and your hips and everything are just really stretched out, strained, and standing, sitting, standing up again is difficult. <clears throat> so in those moments of grief, intense grief that I was already experiencing before my dad died, my hips hurt so badly. It's and so I stood in the warrior pose. I think that we were saying earlier, it's that manifestation of all those traumas on the outside of us can show up in the most unique ways within our body. And it just like, you know, we can have those timeline skews where we end up in different realities based on decisions we make. Those things that we accept as our reality um, in different situations where we're not practicing mindfulness can show up in various ways, i.e. pain in the hips for a woman, something like that. Could be your, you know, chest pains, flutters. It could be right ear going Mm -hmm. numb. People don't realize it could be the most non-related thing because our our systems are so intricate. Everything's, you know, interlaced and that's biological. Let's not even go to energetic and things like that and all the things that we've not given credit to. And I want to ask, because there's a theme throughout your description of how to deal with this or how you traversed it. And it's mindfulness, it's yoga, Mm -hmm. it's redirecting pain and using it for urgency and things like that. So these aren't skills that people necessarily have in their toolbox right now. Now you said to prepare for these situations on paper, right? that we have to make sure that financially things are put together, that we have all these things in order. But what do we no, do for ourselves? I was just going to say the preparation is so much more. Right. Than that's what I want to, that's what I want to, that's what I want to hear. Well, so um, there's a, there's a new, it's not so new, but it's being touted a lot more uh, type of, uh, I don't know what you want to say, profession or career out there called end of life doula. Mm. And after going through what I went through with my dad, I had never heard of an end of life doula. And often it's women who are doulas helping with birth who realize the missing piece of helping with death. And we said earlier, the whole birth and death thing is very, very similar. And so it's typically women. It can be men too, but it's mostly women out there now who have taken on this this role and are putting themselves out there as end of life doulas. And they are helping Families and people who are dying navigate that unfamiliar terrain. A lot of people say that that's a circle. A lot of people say that children and elderly, a lot of tribes and things like that will say that people that are the closest to death and the closest to being born tend to spend the most time together because they're the closest to where we came from or where we're going. Well, they should spend a lot of time together. I think our families are very fractured in modern society. Other countries and even third world countries, a lot of the richness that they find is in family connection, community, tribe. And Agreed. we don't have that. Like we're, we're sitting here thinking, wow, we're so fancy. Look at all, look at all mm-hmm. these cars I've got, the houses I've got. Empty. We are so disconnected. Empty. We are so disconnected. Yeah. So I think the end of life doula can explain, can guide, can. And I actually, after my dad died, wanted to start a company. 
and I didn't know what I since I didn't know about adult life doulas, I wanted to start a company where people could be guides to people whose loved ones are dying or to the person who is dying. It's mm. that outside person who can navigate all of the paths that are in front of you that you don't know which you don't know which one to go down or how to even go down or you can't even walk because you're crawling because you're so bereft. So I wanted to start a company and I called it um Oh, it was like Grief Angels. Hmm, I like that. I had a, well, right. My dad was at, at home right at between two hospitals right before he died. And Visiting Angels is this company that will send people as caregivers, which is great. And the woman that they sent was phenomenal. And she was so phenomenal that she actually showed up at the hospital for a number of days to, to help my dad with the transition. Mm. Uh, visiting angels. So I thought, well, there's got to be something next. There's got to be grief angels. And so, you know, I got the website and I was, was starting to try to think what would that look like that I couldn't figure it out. And then I learned a few years later about end of, uh, end of life doulas. That's um, got to be a heavy duty role to have because, you know, we've left out the, one of the bigger pieces of that. And that is that there's fundamental questions about spirituality, religion, life after death, all of these questions rear their head. And, mm-hmm. and that's not just, you know, oh, well, the lights are turning off and that's what I'm scared of. It's did I hedge my bet correctly? Did I pick the right slice of the religious or spiritual pie to make it mm-hmm. to the next game? And when you're you're putting it, I mean, I like to simplify things. I really do. And I, yeah. I say that religion to me, religion to me is a pizza. It all started in one area. It, it really did. That's a center. And then it grew out from there. It's still a pizza. It's just got different toppings on each one. And then the supporting piece at the fiddle is that stupid little white table that keeps the box from crushing us. Right? (laughs) That's how I think about it because all of them have, they all have the same answers, just with different seasonings on them. And I feel like when you're sitting in that position and you're faced with that, I feel that particular role has got to be something that requires somebody maybe not to answer those questions. You can't necessarily be the gatekeeper after life as a doula, but I think that there's got to be a, uh, it's got to be a special person. It's got to be somebody that really practices a lot of the things that you mentioned throughout your grieving process um, or how you, you know, manage these situations. You can't send somebody in there that's not mindful. Right, right. I agree. I agree. Um, I want to also mention one thing that I did before we go. Um, There is... You hear that thunder? <laughs> That's why I'm so um, dark in here. There's a thunderstorm right um, outside my window right now. Oh, oh God. Uh, Megan Devine. She has a course called Writing in Grief. I believe that's the name of the course. Megan Devine. She also has a book out. We'll cite that in the grieving. show notes as well. It's Yeah, it's so important because that's as a writer, but you don't have to be a writer to join. She gives you these prompts and you're in a small Facebook group with other people in similar or not so similar situations. And you're all just writing the prompt and you share if you want to share, you comment if you want to comment. She has some guidelines on how to do it. And it was a 30-day course. I went through all 30 days and published a lot of my essays up on Medium, my Mm. Medium account. And it was, I I don't even remember writing half of them. That's how out of it I was with grief. But it was also tremendous. Just just that connection and 
it was difficult, but you know, you got to do hard things to get to that next place. And that's that very well said. Out. You have to do hard things to get to the next place. Inaction does not affect change. You don't get better right. by sitting still. And a lot of people don't eat that. And you can be stagnant in your grief. You can be stagnant in your victimhood or stagnant in whatever situation it is. But it will always be that situation unless you stand up and put the left foot in front of the right foot. Or, you know, and that's, that's even dreams. That's, you know, anything that you want to do in life, it does not, dreams don't, don't happen without action. You can't, you can't do anything. You can't get better when you're grieving or when you're a victim of things. You will never come out the other side if you don't move. You have to at least have some form of action because otherwise kind of accepting it as the easier way well that's i mean that is victimhood is that you, when you accept your fate yeah that's the easier route no because yeah. you're not done like yeah. that's you can't quit before the game is over right you, you just look like the guy that quit sitting in the corner you're still there yeah well this is this is a really tough thing to think about it and is. talk about for, every, for everybody, really. Um, but it's an important conversation to have. I'm really grateful that you have these conversations and that you are able to bring it to more people. Uh, the more people we can help understand that it is, there are steps you can take to get through these things in a way that you come out on the other end changed, yes, but not a victim, not, not immobile, not um, not stalled in your life. You don't need to be stalled. No. I mean, it's a journey. We're moving forward, whether we want to or not. It's just like, how do you, permanent life how do, you do more with that? Yeah, right. absolutely. Absolutely. I can't thank yeah. you enough for coming on. And I mean, in all honesty, we need to, as humans, begin to discuss death much more openly. Yeah. The fear of death creates more of, I mean, if you want to be real about it, I'd venture to say that a good portion of the nonsense that we do in life, I mean, across the board, even jobs, careers, and things are all based out of the fact that we're afraid we're going to die and we don't have yeah. anything else to do with the time but to think about it. So we just start doing more and more shit as humans and we create more and more bad habits, more and more layers, more and more recompound problems. When yeah. In all actuality, if we were able to sit and properly discuss death, like you don't see these tribes don't grieve the same way when they lose somebody because they have, they have the ultimate respect for that next step in whatever journey you're on. Right? right. So the moment that we start to normalize, because my God, how can you, it's sad that you have to normalize something that absolutely happens to every single person. Like it couldn't be any more normal. Yes, exactly. All living things. We have to normalize that discussion. So yeah. I want to thank you. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for you coming on here and discussing um, and just full disclosure. My, uh, my mother has cancer right now. And uh, mm. she's been fighting it for years. Um, oh, wow. She's about three I'm years in now. Um, she so tough, I, like my mom, yep. fighting it for three years. She's she's still going and uh, mm. doing her thing. But you're, you're right. It does force you to live in a fight or flight scenario for a mm. long, long time. 
And it does make you question a lot of your interactions throughout life with the person that you're losing. And you start yeah. to feel guilt for past transgressions or feelings or, you know, did I not do enough? Or was I the, the person that I thought I was to them? Or were they as bad as I thought they were in situations? Yeah. And the closer you get to the, you know, the final door, the more you realize that none of those things mattered. It's the moment, that very moment. It's this moment. It's it this is. moment right now. Yeah, you're a beautiful person. I, I want you to know that. What a great human. I mean, since all the remarkable things that you've done, you've empowered more women probably on the planet than most any other, uh, just based on no, the strength. Come that's on. Kind of that's no, come <laughs> on. Look at this. Most powerful women in technology. You founded Cyber Girl Incorporated and Web Girls International. Come on. That's affecting change. I can give you a compliment. <laughs> well, you know, I have to do, I have to say if you speak to almost any woman in in sort of the upper or middle echelons of the tech industry they probably heard of web girls they probably were a web girl um, we did we did impact many many women's lives around the world we had 100 chapters so okay right. so I'll, I'll, I'll take that See, I love it. I, I love when I see these I groups that, that allow, yeah. you know, younger, younger women start learning coding at, at younger ages. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah. I just had to throw that in there because when I was reading through your bio, I thought that was so amazing um, because it's you're okay, a pioneer. Like to end on that, but okay. Yeah. I, I know, I know, <laughs> but you. you're, you're a great person and I genuinely appreciate you coming on and I'm sure that everybody's going to be reaching out. Tell us where you can find your book or your website and anything like that. Yeah, uh, just search for my name, Eliza Sherman, on your favorite bookseller online. Uh, if you're not going into bookstores at the moment, but if you do, go into your favorite indie bookstore and request any of my books by name and, and have them order them. Uh, ElizaSherman.com is a place to find me. I'm usually on Twitter, twitter.com slash Eliza Sherman. <laughs> uh, yeah, usually you can. I'm usually the Elisa Sherman you find, but if you Google Elisa Sherman, tragically, it is um, a woman with the same name. We were connected on Facebook because all the Elisa Shermans find each other and she was murdered and it's still, an, it's an unsolved murder. And you, so if you search for Elisa Sherman, um, my morbid sense of humor says I'm the one that's living, but that's really sick and bad. <laughs> See, I love that though. That is why I did this. This, this show so is bad. on dark humor. I wrote I wrote an essay about being Elisa Sherman and being the only Elisa Sherman to pop up on, on the internet for many, many, many years until this woman was murdered. And I reached out to her daughter as well. And I said, I, I'll try to use my platform to build awareness. I'm still an unsolved murder. So if you do happen to go there uh, to Google and search for my name and you see her, um, see if there's something you can do. If there's a fund to donate to or something, just to, to try oh, yeah, to find the children. Wow. There you go. Ending on a death <laughs> note. Just uh, come in with it and leave with it. Again, I appreciate you. And remember, everybody, be cool and keep learning. Hey, academics. Thanks again for attending another class at the Tragedy Academy. You can show us some love by subscribing, downloading, and rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or ask Amazon Alexa to play the Tragedy Academy podcast. You can find links to all major podcast platforms and past episodes at thetragedyacademy.com. You can find us on all the majors of social media on Instagram at the Tragedy Academy 2019, on TikTok at the Tragedy Academy, and on Twitter at tragedy underscore academy, where we'll post our clips of upcoming shows, updated info, and thoughts. If you'd like to be a guest, send an email to show at thetragedyacademy.com. 
keep an eye out on Instagram for Tragedy Academy giveaways. Thanks again for coming to class. And remember, be cool, keep learning. What's up, academics? This is Jay. I'm here to talk to you about Into the AM. This is a clothing and apparel company that I came across last year that has the absolute coolest designs. And the reason why I was attracted to it is because I grew up without a lot of money, like many others, and had to shop on that outlet rack with the irregular items. Things like the fly was over four inches to the left, or the right sleeve would be twice the size of the left. It looked like I was growing horizontally. Like, it's okay, honey, you'll grow into your left arm. So you really don't get a chance to express yourself the way that you want to. You go into life, you start putting on suits, you start putting on uniforms, and you realize you'd never had a chance to truly express yourself. Enter into the AM, a team of artists and creators who share a common vision. They see clothing as a canvas to express what drives you. Since 2012, they've developed premium apparel that elevates self-expression and provides unparalleled comfort for wherever your passions take you. Into the AM's passion for change is the driving force behind their brand. They remain committed to creating products that inspire and promote self-expression by partnering with like-minded organizations focused on giving back to communities in need. Last year, they donated 1% of all revenue from their graphic tees collection to the Art of Elysium charity. The Art of Elysium is an artist organization built on the idea that through service, art becomes a catalyst for social change. For over 24 years, the Art of Elysium has paired volunteer artists with communities to support individuals in the midst of difficult emotional life changes. They currently offer 110 community programs per month, serving over 30,000 individuals per year. The only permanent thing in life is change. Supporting charities dedicated to helping those going through these changes, trials, and tribulations require a never-ending commitment. The onus is on us as creators to affect change through our true, authentic talents, and Into the AM is the model of how this is done. Their clothes are handcrafted with care, they have a team of skilled artisans that craft each garment with the highest quality fabrics and eco-friendly inks. Not to mention, these things don't shrink, they don't fade, and they fit as if they were designed supernaturally. I'm stopped every time I wear one of the graphic tees to find out where I got it. The colors attract attention from miles, and the art is nothing short of spectacular, with designs for everyone. One of my personal favorites, Twilight Maiden. Go take a look. Into the AM does all of this while putting their money where their mouth is. 30-day money-back guarantee, lightning-fast shipping, and hassle-free returns. The deals are endless. Graphic tee bundles, discount promo codes. Get over there. Check it out. I'm highlighting the tees, but I'd be remiss to not mention that if you want to walk around in the absolute most comfortable shorts, joggers, and basic tees, hit up into the end. I even wear the basics to the gym. Head on over to thetragedyacademy.com. Go to our sponsors tab and follow the affiliate link to the Into the AM store. Help support Into the AM and the Tragedy Academy by purchasing the absolute best apparel and the best designs ever. And remember, academics, be cool and keep learning.